I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health, concerned about seeing the science they fund commercialized, have embraced the lean startup method as a way to improve the odds of success for new companies. Steve Blank, whose work launched the lean startup movement, has long worked with entrepreneurs, but last year began working with life sciences startups to apply the approach to an area he once thought it would not work. We spoke to Blank, entrepreneur, author, and lean startup guru, about what startups do wrong, what he's learned from applying the method to the life sciences, and whether there are lessons to be learned from lean startups for older, established companies. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. We talked about a year ago and discussed your Lean Launchpad class, which you've been offering to entrepreneurs at top universities. Last year, you brought it to UCSF for drug, device, and digital health entrepreneurs. And this approach has been embraced by not only the National Science Foundation, but the National Institutes of Health to advance the commercialization of the science they fund. Let's start with the idea of the Lean Startup itself. What's the problem with the traditional approach to startups and how is the lean startup approach different? Well, you know, uh, the interesting thing is uh, we've been building startups uh, like they were smaller versions of large companies. And that's a big idea. That is, investors used to assume and used to tell their entrepreneurs is, you know, you do everything a large company does. They write a business plan, you write a business plan. They write a five-year forecast, you write a five-year forecast. They hire sales, marketing, biz dev on day one, you do that too. They, you know, spec the product and then they go into execution mode, that is, build the product, and uh, then you do that as well. All that is actually fundamentally wrong. And, and the short version is we now know that existing companies execute known business models, meaning existing companies know who their customers are, know what the regulatory issues are, know what the IP issues are, and reimbursement issues, and in you know, life sciences, you know, have been through clinical trials, and therefore, it's a repeatable and executable process. But startups, even though they believe they have great science or great technology, only have a series of untested hypotheses about the rest of how to commercialize that science. You really don't quite know who the customers are or what activities you need to do or what resources you require and, and how reimbursement works. And, and so this distinction between search and execution is the distinction between a startup and, and an existing corporation, yet we never had any tools for search. We had plenty of tools to teach you how to run an existing company. In fact, that's what business schools were started to do 100 years ago, and they've spent 100 years teaching us some great strategy and tactics and you know operational tools to go do that. But there's never been any tools to teach founders how to build a startup other than cloning a large company. And so the Lean Startup is simply a, the first tool set to do that. 
And should I describe briefly the three components? Well, yeah, you said there are three key principles. Yes. Let's let's walk through those. The, the and, and, and so the first key principle matches what I've just said. If a startup is searching for a business model, it's really about testing your hypotheses. And what we use to frame your hypotheses about your company is something called the business model canvas by uh, designed by someone named Alexander Osterwalder. It takes your complicated business plan and actually breaks it down and says, well, we doubt that this is actually a series of facts. We think these are a series of hypotheses on day one. Why don't we just put them in these little boxes with yellow stickies so we could identify what they are. And the second step, once we frame these hypotheses, is we're going to test them outside the building. And this is what gets scientists um, and clinicians kind of vibrating is, well, what do you mean test them? I, that's what I'm going to have my grad students do, or I could hire you know some consulting firm to do this. And our insight, which I think is no longer an insight, it's just a fact, is um, there are no facts inside your building, so you need to get the heck outside. And the reason why you need to do that is, as smart as you are, there is no way that you could be smarter than the collective intelligence of your potential customers. And three is, you can't do this by proxy. Um, because bad news doesn't travel very well, and neither does insight. And so that's the second piece to framing is a, is actually testing your hypotheses. And the third one, the third piece, is developing your product iteratively and incrementally, uh, and which you could even do for therapeutics and devices, um, with a methodology called agile engineering. And so these three components, business model design, customer development, and agile engineering make up this lean startup approach, which is the first step that founders of any company should be doing um, before they start spending lots of time and money. And forgive me, the the agile development, what, what did you mean by that? So agile development in the old days, the way we used to build products are, whether they were therapeutics or devices or diagnostics or nowadays digital health, is we'd have a belief that this is great science or, you know, this is uh, this is our vision. And we'd simply, you know, put together a spec of what the, either what the target is or, or here are the customers or, you know, what the features should be. And then we'd spend a long time building the entire product. And it wasn't until we got the product almost done or, you know, FDA phase one for therapeutics or uh, some, some space and devi- devices would we finally figure out that, oops, we just wasted potentially tens of millions of dollars and, you know, years because we didn't quite understand who the right customer was or whether we could get reimbursed for it or worse, whether, you know, drug companies already had six of these in their pipeline already. Um, an agile engineering method allows us to develop prototypes. And in life sciences, a prototype could be when you would expect a physical prototype like you would see for a component of a device. But for therapeutics, you would go, well, what kind of prototype can I have for a drug? Actually, you could prototype what kind of high-quality data you might be delivering to a therapeutics partner, and they actually would tell you, or very early, nah, even if you gave us that data, that would be insufficient to, to have some kind of collaboration. Um, so the idea is, in fact, how can we maximize our learning about the business, not about the science, but about the business, as early as possible in the commercialization effort? That's a big idea. And we call these things minimum viable products. They're not just a prototype 
there are a series of prototypes that allow us to kind of validate whether our hypotheses about whether this is a business or just a good paper in science nature or cell. Um, that's what agile engineering does. Does that help? And, and we, we've talked in the past about this, but, you know, there's a fundamental difference between software industry and life sciences, particularly therapeutics, because of the long development times and the high cost of development. And, and the ultimate question of, you know, whether a drug is safe and effective. In your books, before you began working with life sciences companies, you actually wrote that this works for everything except life sciences. You bet. And What's <laughs> changed your mind? I, well, uh, one, I was wrong, so let's start there. And two, <laughs> and two, how I was wrong was actually quite interesting. I had sat on a life science board way back in the 90s, and my model then, and I'll admit it might not even have been true then, was that for example, for pharma, they were completely you know, vertically integrated, and you know, if you had a drug and a relationship, it might come when you're in a phase one trial, and you know, that's ten years down the road, and and then if you have something interesting, the only problem will be is your office big enough to hold the bags of money you will be getting. It turns out that, as you know, and your listeners know, that um, pharma has undergone a complete revolution in the last five years. Their business models completely changed. They're actively looking for collaborations. And the big insight that we've gotten um, is that you could actually get a serious collaboration within 18 months with a pharma company, depending on whether you deliver some high-quality data that you've agreed that actually would meet a set of criteria. Now, I knew none of this when I was approached by UCSF, who said, Steve, we'd like you to teach your NSF class for life sciences teams. And I said, just like you did, didn't you read my book? It says it won't work for life sciences. And they rightly said, well, didn't you read our sign? We are the leading you know, university on life sciences, and we think it will. And so they kind of just you know, hoisted me by my own petard by saying, you know, why don't you get out of the building with us and talk to venture capitalists now in therapeutic devices and diagnostics and see what they think of, of your own method. And I went out and uh, with them, and we found out that venture capitalists were dying for a way to see if we could actually move validation of whether we have a viable business much earlier in the pipeline. As you know, um, funding for life, across the life sciences board, for maybe the exception of digital health, uh, is, is number of VCs just been dropping, dropping dramatically because the giant sucking sound you hear is all of them moving to social media. Why wait 15 years? for a payout when you could get billions in three. And so every one of them were looking for a way, can we move the commercialization point, at least understanding a go-no-go no go decision, much earlier. Um, and so I said, okay, um, if you think this is such a good idea, why don't you teach this with me? And what happened is we rounded up a series of venture capitalists who are actually have you know decades of, of, of uh, experience in commercialization to kind of teach the prototype of this NIH class at UCSF uh, last year when we had 25 teams uh, uh, go through it. And by the way, I got through week four of the 10-week class, and I realized uh, we were really onto something and went to Washington and called on the NIH and said, you really got to sit through this to see what's going on. So tell me what you've learned by working with entrepreneurs in the life sciences about how to uh, adapt and, and apply the lean startup model to this industry. So the real surprise to even the instructors was this lean startup model works. It works for domains I never expected it to. So at the 50,000-foot level, this class looks identical 
to the ones taught at, <laughs> I teach my grad students at Stanford and Berkeley, but also looks identical to the one taught at NSF. But if you go down a level, the real learnings we had is that, number one, the business, which your listeners know, but from the outside, if you're not in this business, not clear, the word life science is meaningless when you start talking about specific business models. As you know, the business model for therapeutics is very different than, than devices, than diagnostics, than bioinformatics, than digital health. And so learning one is, if you didn't understand those distinctions yourself as an instructor, it's going to be hard to give specific guidance to teams. Two is the order in which we um, teach the business model is actually that is the order we want the teams to learn things differs in life sciences than it does in a web or mobile or hardware company. And that's because the life science companies, now I'm going to say in general, have about four or five items on their checklist that are critical that are just don't exist in any other business. And they are IP, that is, do you have freedom to operate both offensively and defensively? You know, how are you going to get reimbursed? It's, grandma is not paying for that new hip, you know, on her credit card. You know, uh, regulation, what is the FDA, you know, either 510K, PMA, or Phase 1 through N trials, and, and what does that look like? Um, and, and clinical trials. Um, you know, those concepts don't exist in any other domain. And if you don't understand them and are not teaching them up front. So, for example, in a therapeutics company, you know, if, if you're not talking about IP, like in the first couple of weeks of the class, and you make it kind of like you do in a, a web startup is, oh, by the way, you've just misled your teams and probably left a couple hundred million dollars sitting on the floor. Um, or if you don't understand CPD codes and reimbursement or or the distinction between a 510K or a PMA, and you're not teaching your teams, you know, how they need to understand this stuff, you're also doing them a disservice. We have figured out how to very explicitly teach all this within the Lean Startup framework that I said from high altitude, this class looks indistinguishable from the others, and on the detailed level actually um, serves them well by uh, putting commercialization experts on those specific issues. And the key part of the class, by the way, is while we're doing lecturing, that's the smallest part of the class. The key part of the class is that it's experiential. The, the, this class is formed in, in is teams, and these teams have to get out of the building and speak to 10 to 15 customers a week and then present back to their peers and the teaching team every week for 10 weeks and get course corrected in front of their peers. It's a pretty intensive class. Um, but even now, we're just in, in, in the fourth lecture, The what they knew on day one versus what they knew a week and a half ago is unbelievable. Just The, the, the change just kind of makes us smile. Um, it, it strikes me that one other difference with the life sciences is the concept of going out and talking to the customer, that the folks I want to talk to before I have funding might be venture capitalists as my customer, and then when I'm getting ready to, to look. Actually, the venture capitalists are the last. We don't even let them do that. It's And it's funny you say that. We're not interested in teaching them how to raise money first. Well, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, of the customer in the classical sense is, you know, if I'm developing a, a cancer therapy, the customer ultimately isn't the patient that's going to be using the drug that, that may be 15, 10, 15 years away. But really thinking about the pharma company that yes, they license. That's, that, thank, 
Well, That's payer, exactly right? what we have. Not only do we have them talking to the pharma companies, we have them talking to the regulators, to KOLs, to you know, uh, Payers, trying to understand what what kind of clinical trials do they need to set up. So, how, how does that shape the approach given the different types of people life science companies might want to engage with? Meaning, I'm sorry. In, in terms of you know, talking to payers, talking to to physicians, talking to pharma p companies, how, how does that change the approach? As opposed to you know a more classic lean startup that is is maybe more focused on the end user per se. So so uh, one of the interesting things about this framework we call the business model canvas is that it has a box called customer segments, and that is traditionally you know you know uh, who's the end user, maybe who's the payer, but it also has some areas on the left is what are the key activities you need to do, what resources do you need, and who are your partners, and in the life sciences class, yes, we start with what you're building and who are the customers, like maybe the pharma companies, but then we quickly drill down to the pieces on the left, these activities, resources, and partners, which which get you pretty knee-deep in talking to regulators and reimbursers and, you know, IP, you know, understanding your IP position and understanding who your partners are going to be very early on in the process. And so the first 30 or 40 customer interviews they were doing are with those types of people, as well as having done the, the traditional customer interviews. And it makes a very interesting set of uh, insights that they have very early on. So is there an example or two you could point to that shows how an entrepreneur learned from this process and how it may have reshaped the plans for their company? Sure. Um, you know, at uh, UCSF, uh, since we've been through that class and he's now actually good, uh, put it on a video, which I'm happy to share. In fact, it's on our website, steveblank.com. Um, the uh, head of surgery of UCSF, Hobart Harris, was uh, working on a, a, a device to, that he had been working on for two to three years and thought it was pretty obvious that there was a commercialization path. And he decided he was going to take the class just so he could teach his interns and students about this method. But, you know, and he was going to use his device just kind of as an example of how to do it right. In week two, he stands up in front of the class and said, this just saved us years. Why? Because he's just, he went out of the building and for the first time, instead of just thinking he was right, spoke to, I don't know, I think by week two or three, he spoke to 24 to 30 of his peers. And they said his hypotheses about reimbursement and why they would use the device was just simply wrong. That That might be what his thoughts were, but that was not what anybody else thought. And by the way, the insurance companies told them the same thing. And so he did what was called a pivot. A pivot is a substantive change to one of your key hypotheses and realized that his business was not over here, it was over here. And that, by the way, his customers actually said, too bad you're not positioning it as X because we'd pay two to three X for, for that. And he did. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm being a bit vague, but um, here was a learning of, of someone who was a domain expert in his field and got trapped in his own, as he would say, in his own dogma of, well, I believe, therefore it must be correct. And after being forced to get out and face, and as he said, the first three or four people who told him he was wrong, he just said, what you naturally say is they just don't get it. But after he heard it from like 14 or 15 people, he started to realize there was some real data here that he never could have pre-computed. Well, this is an approach for startups, but you know, I've always been struck 
<laughs> the way this industry makes very big and costly mistakes because of their the way they think and thinking how they might benefit from from doing some of the things yeah. that that the lean startups are doing. Could, have you seen these principles applied by established companies? Or yeah, it's funny you say that because uh, you're quite prescient. Um, and NSF, this is taught as an input um, to the startup process. But in NIH, the teams we have uh, have already gotten funded. And, you know, the concern was, well, it would be much harder for them to change and they would know what they're doing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out exactly as you said. I mean, you know, they're all their eyes are like wide going, uh-oh, we spent all this money on a series of implicit or, or maybe even explicit assumptions that were just plain wrong. Oops. Um, and so, uh, yes, I, I think for established companies, this process works equally as well. It just takes a little more evidence to convince the CEO that that the current path is is perhaps not optimum. But once they hear it themselves, because they are part of this team, there's no denying evidence. I mean, what we're inventing here, for at least that works for in the life science areas, what I explain is, just like evidence-based medicine, we're inventing evidence-based entrepreneurship. It's no longer my opinion or your opinion. It's now we now have enough data from outside the building to say, listen, it might be world-class science, but let me explain to you the the barriers and and or opportunities in building a, a, a commercially viable company. They're not always the same. Steve Blank, entrepreneur, author, and lean startup guru. Steve, thanks as always. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Take care. Uh, it's a pleasure, Steve. Thanks so much. That was great. Um, probably be live a week. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.